Distractions podcast, a podcast where we chat true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I'm one of your hosts, Alex. And your host, Christy. And this week we are back talking true crime and apologies in advance because this one's depressing. But as always, before we dive into the case, we've got some things to ask one another. So Christy, hot piping question. What is your need for a distraction? My need for a distraction, I was just telling Alex, I worked nights, uh, came off night Sunday night, Sunday morning. And then I went back to work and had to turn around and do a seven o'clock shift Monday morning and days again all week. And body's not liking me right now. So I need to be distracted because I just keep falling asleep because I'm so exhausted. I am not feeling that kind of vibe, (laughs) but that is horrible. And I do not envy you for being on night shift and you are a queen for working night shifts and all those out there that do work night shifts hats off to you because that shit is not fun. I mean, some people love it. Some people thrive off of it, but yeah, it's not, not my, not been there, done that. Don't want to go back anytime soon. Yeah. People that work like a week of nights or like nights on their rotations like all the time. I don't know how you do it. it's not, it's not my thing. I, like, I don't live very well. <laughs> Fair enough. And to answer your question, my need for a distraction is Mercury is in fucking retrograde and it is awful. It is awful. It is driving me bonky because I'm finding there has been a lot of miscommunication with work and chaos. I'll just utter chaos. It just feels as if a dumpster fire is happening in the background constantly. And you know what? For all those that don't believe in astrology and what have you and the stars and whoop-dee-dee, whoop-dee-doo, I understand. You know what? I get it. But I need something to put blame on, and I'm blaming Mercury in retrograde, and therefore, don't at me. I have a question. How long is Mercury in retrograde, and how long will this be your excuse? Because I feel like when you're just like, everything that happens, you're like, Mercury. <laughs> it's just like a month straight. <laughs> it is in retrograde until the 18th of October, as far as my understanding. Okay, fair. I maybe do feel that today because work has also been a dumpster fire, especially today. Yeah, it always seems to affect healthcare. I don't care what anyone says. I feel as though there are certain times of the month or certain times of the year where healthcare just goes bananas and no one seems to know what it is and then all of a sudden people are like well is there a full moon is mercury in retrograde and everyone you know as soon as they say yes to either or it's like ah that makes sense i feel the full moon thing is for sure that's the go-to exactly yeah i i vibe with that i vibe with that so now that we've got the distractions out of the way i do have two reminders two little housekeeping things that i just want to share. So first and foremost, our midweek mini spooks are all out on Patreon and new ones will appear every Wednesday for the month of October to our regular feed. For those who didn't tune in to last week's midweek mini spook, the slit mouthed woman that Christy covered, tune into that episode. Essentially, midweek mini spooks is a series where each week Christy and I take turns talking about folklore, paranormal locations, this, that, and the other true crime I think we covered one year. And we just try and get into the spooky season that's that's basically it's a little extra bonus content for listeners just to i don't know get into the the vibe of things as the kids would say i agree and especially because it's spooky season and halloween's coming up definitely stock up on candy because in regards to the slip mouth woman it might save your life exactly 
Exactly. So that's that reminder. And then the second reminder is that we have a new Weird Spam episode coming out for our Here for the Weird patrons, which once again, those are our $5 a month patrons, and that's $5 USD a month. And that will be out on Friday, October 15th. And we have another special guest. So if you want to hear who we had on Weird Spam and just I don't know. Tune in. Listen, it's a funny segment. It is hilarious. If you want to tune in, check us out on Patreon. Christy will share the information later on at the end of the episode. Spoiler, it wasn't me, so definitely go check it out. <laughs> you, when you were on it last, it was hilarious. Don't you sell you yourself short, girl. Oh, thanks. <laughs> now, to kind of turn this party from a happy-go-lucky... You know, we're giggling, we're enjoying each other's company. Like I said before, this week... We're, we're talking a really depressing true crime case, so I think it's time to shift gears and go down that road. Lovely. So this week's true crime episode takes us to beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, to discuss a downright horrible case involving another family annihilator situation. This week, we are talking about the case of Thomas Cosberg. And I say another family annihilator situation, as we recently covered one by the way of our Janie Lou Gibbs episode, aka episode 75. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would highly recommend you do so. Before we dive into the case, I will go over the documented history before we get into the crime. And I'm going to give a big old trigger warning for this episode, as this case involves some brutality against minors and overall may be difficult to listen to. So this is your warning, and this is me saying, listen discretion is advised you've been warned yep so if you're not feeling in a good headspace today i would suggest maybe tuning in on a later day but regardless we're gonna move forward and let's talk about the history so thomas gordon cosberg was born on october 2nd 1948 to parents osborne and dorothy cosberg for those who are interested in astrology maybe you know what mercury and retrograde really means thomas was a Libra. When looking into some traits of Libras, one stood out to me in the more negative sense of things, which is that Libras are known to be detached. I almost said Nacho Libre or whatever. I don't know why. My mind's on food, apparently. <laughs> Who knows? Did you eat dinner? I did. That's the problem. <laughs> Always hungry for snacks, the no nachos. This is exactly. Uh, but anyways, essentially, Libras are known to be detached. Keep this in mind as we go on, as it may be more apparent given the context of the case. Thomas had a total of five siblings, brothers Barry, Vincent, Osborne Jr., and two sisters, Marianne and Gail. The Cosberg family lived at 412 East 22nd Avenue in the Riley Park neighborhood in Vancouver. According to the Redfin website, which appears to be kind of like a real estate website, the home boasts five bedrooms, three bathrooms, and has approximately 2,247 square feet. Oh, which just sounds like a lovely little home. Mm-hmm. The home seemed to be built in 1912, and according to the Redfin website again, it may have been sold back in 2010 for approximately over 700000 Back to Thomas, as this is not House Hunters Canada, as a child, Thomas was described as being a nice kid who, with his siblings would reportedly do anything for their parents. A lot of resources, though, seemed to pass out the ideation that Thomas struggled with mental illness growing up. 
In perhaps a form of assisting Thomas's mental health needs, he would be sent to live in a residential facility called Central City Mission. When I kind of did a little deep dive into this place, I kind of found out that it's now called Central City Foundation, and according to their website, they started in 1907. Back in 1907, the premise became to be when a small group of neighbors decided to start a mission for the poor and the unemployed men living in Vancouver's inner city. Based on what I read, I think Thomas attended the facility sometime in the 1960s, which it seems as though the organization had created a couple of group homes for young men who were in need of housing while being treated for mental illnesses or completing employment readiness programs. You know, just overall, they needed somewhere to kind of be that maybe wasn't home or maybe they didn't have a home, so therefore they were there. Uh, And this is once again referencing the foundation's website directly. When Thomas was at Central City, it seemed as though he was able to get along with others based on documentation. However, he seemed to also have a tendency to kind of run away from the facility. He also had a documented history of running away from home as well. I'm not sure if it was kind of sporadic or if he just kind of ran away from wherever he was staying due to being triggered or what have you, but essentially he was kind of known as a quote flight risk because he would just kind of run away. That's unfortunate because it seems like, I don't know what's going on at home prior to, but the facility seems to be some kind of supportive atmosphere. Why would one want to run away? Yeah, exactly. So I, my, I mean, I'm not going to spread speculations too heavily in terms of why he ran away, but essentially my speculation about time of treatment comes from the documented notion that he began receiving reports for his mental health in around 1961 by a Dr. Bennett Wong. So essentially, I think he was at the facility in the 1960s because at around 1961, he was seeing Dr. Bennett Wong. I don't know if Dr. Bennett Wong was associated with the Central City person say. However, given the context of the Central City programming around that time, I think it's fair to think that at least Thomas was connecting with Dr. Bennett Wong simultaneously. Regardless, in January of 1964, then 16-year-old Thomas would be admitted to the Crease Clinic, which was the mental health portion of the Riverview Hospital in Coquitlam. Riverview Hospital is now designated as a mental health facility, which has a history dating back to 1904 when the hospital was constructed due to overcrowding at the Royal Hospital in Victoria and the former provincial asylum for the quote-unquote insane. While Thomas was at the clinic, he would reportedly see Superintendent Dr. B.F. Bryson, where it was indicated that Thomas was struggling with, quote, emotional disturbance and a personality problem, which in my mind isn't necessarily a formal diagnosis, especially in today's standards, but it's kind of an interesting notion that At the time, these designated problems were more or less an expectation due to the age category. I mean, Thomas is a teenager at this point, so they're like, oh, you know, this is normal for kids his age. But yet, he was receiving treatment. Yeah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense 100%. Well, especially considering there was no, as far as my understanding, there was no documented diagnoses. The closest thing to a, a diagnosis was, quote, emotional disturbance and a personality problem. Which that can mean a lot of different things. As you said, he's a teenager. It could not be something like direct. It could be acting out. They're a teenager. Don't exactly. Don't break to conclusions. Exactly. And I'm not going to try to millennialize this case, but I started hum- <laughs> I started humming Teenagers by My Chemical Romance when I was typing up the notes for this portion. Because 
I hope you remember the song Teenagers Scare the Living Shit on Me. Please tell me you remember this song. Or am I sounding like an asshole on air? I don't know if I remember it. Oh. If I heard it, I'm sure I remember it. But I got off my heart, I can't think of the tune like you can apparently. Teenagers scare the living shit out of me. Oh, I don't yeah, see, I yeah see, okay, yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Because I was like, I don't know how much I can sing, slash I can't sing, slash I also don't want to get sued. I don't know how that works, but yeah. Anyways. I'm catching your vibe now. Okay, I feel you. Thank you. Oh, I start sweating there for a second. So anyways, it's also interesting. Another interesting tidbit uh, that Dr. B.F. Bryson had reportedly stated that there was, quote, no indication that Thomas's condition, once again being, quote, emotional disturbance and a, and a personality problem, would lead to a breakdown or manifestation of violence at some point in a future date. Not to spoil the story so quickly... But because we're talking about Thomas on a true crime episode, I think some people can kind of already speculate wildly that this is going to bite Dr. B.F. Brayson in the ass later on. Yeah, clearly true crime. Shit's going to go down. Yeah. 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 Anyways, Thomas had stayed at Crease Clinic until May of 1964, so roughly about five months in total. I'm not positive, but I assume that Thomas was then sent back to the family's home after this hospital stint, in which he reportedly received some kind of group therapy classes afterwards. Now we're going to jump from May of 1964 to December 8th of 1965. I'm not sure what happened on December 8th per se, but it appears as though either Thomas or his parents had tried to set up an appointment with Dr. Wong. Not really, once again, not able to say exactly why this appointment was requested. However, what we do know based on online information is that unfortunately Thomas would go on to see Dr. Wong again, but not for a regularly scheduled appointment. So jumping to sometime on December 9th, Thomas allegedly had purchased a bottle of 25 sleeping pills in which he had brought home afterwards. At some point on this day, Thomas began offering his mother, his siblings, and his mother's friend, Florence, to make them all chocolate milkshakes. In the milkshake concoction, Thomas supposedly put the entire pill bottle of sleeping pills that he had purchased. Everyone had their own milkshake, and, you know, after ingesting the milkshakes, the boys started coming to the yard. I'm kidding. No, sorry. I have to make some kind of, like, lightness happen in this situation, because it's about to get really dark. Oh, yeah. Just filling your whole family some sleeping pills. And then whatever happened with the other guy at his office apparently seems really bad. But whatever happened, it's going downhill real fast. Yeah, so nothing happened yet with the doctor. He just called, like, either him, either Thomas or his parents had called to try to make an appointment. Oh, well, do you see? Okay. Yes. So nothing happened yet, but Thomas would go to see Dr. Wong, just not for that scheduled appointment that they were trying to make. Catch my drift? I got you. Yes. So as mentioned, everyone started drinking the milkshakes. Everyone's apparently started getting really sleepy. And one by one, everyone kind of went to, to sleep, essentially. It's been documented that Florence had fallen asleep in the living room, but reportedly woke up sometime around 11 p.m. in which she had decided to go home via taxi. Now, supposedly, Thomas had tried to convince Florence to stay. However, she was adamant that she wanted to go home, in which she did. Thomas's mother and siblings had gone all to their rooms at this point, and Thomas's father returned home at around 1 a.m. as he just got off from work. Osborne, Thomas 
Thomas's dad, was a truck driver for the Allied Heat and Fuel Company. So I can kind of imagine his hours were all over the place. So this wasn't uncommon for him to come home at 1 a.m. Given the notion, though, that he just got home fairly early in the morning after presumably a long shift at work, his eyes probably landed on the milkshakes in the kitchen, in which supposedly Osborne helped himself to one of the pre-made milkshakes before heading to bed himself. Well, he's going to have a very good sleep. Mm-hmm. Three hours after his father had arrived home, Thomas supposedly went down to the family basement where he grabbed a double-bitted axe. He then returned upstairs to where his family members were peacefully sleeping in their rooms. Just a reminder of a trigger warning, if you are squeamish or if you just kind of have a hunch of where this is going and you don't want to listen, skip a minute or two ahead. Just... This is your this is your second and last trigger warning. One, two, three, we're moving on. So Thomas began attacking his siblings with the axe before moving to attacking his parents. All six Cosberg family members would suffer from severe skull and brain injuries due to the blows they received. But according to a pathologist, none of the Cosbergs died instantaneously, which means they didn't die right away. No, well, they either like bled they, out or had yeah. like brain bleeds and suffered and whatever exactly. else. So they were all sleeping when they died, correct? Yes. Like no one woke up at any point. As far as what's documented, yes, everyone was asleep. I don't know if people maybe woke up as the attacks kind of progressed. It's not documented otherwise. And I mean, who knows? Because we'll get into it. There's some discrepancies as to what took place. Well, not that any of them should die or die in that way. It's, it's, better that they were asleep even though it's not what anybody wants but yeah probably made a little better than getting bludgeoned to death alive but still very fucked up yeah yeah no I, I see where you're coming from and agreed once thomas maybe felt that he was done he changed his clothes before taking his father's car for a joy ride this joy ride led to him running the car into a power pole basically trashing the car at one point sources claim that thomas intended on trying to steal another car however i'm going to assume that didn't pan out as he ended up in a telephone booth at this point did someone have their license because they're a very poor driver just gonna say <laughs> well i mean he took it for a joy ride so i'm gonna assume he probably didn't have his license or if he did he wasn't a good driver yeah, i mean he looks like he went on a trash ride and just got in trouble everywhere i mean mind you he also just you know murdered his entire family i don't know how well of a driver anyone would be after that point to be honest in the, in but, the mental state he's in yes, yeah exactly yeah yeah and so i say that he didn't steal another car and that he ended up in the telephone booth because the next documented known move was essentially him calling a man by the name of Robert Estergaard. Based off an article in the province newspaper that I read dated December of 1965, Robert was a supervisor at Central City and knew Thomas for some time due to Thomas receiving supports through this agency. Robert agreed to meet with Thomas and I'm going to use a direct quote from the December 11th, 1965 province newspaper article quote he seemed disturbed and asked me to meet him in front of the, his house it seemed like i was the only person he could turn to i drove over and he got in the car he was pale and trembling he was doubled over with cramps and he kept holding his stomach i thought he'd taken poison now and again he would drift off to sleep end quote i was gonna say he's probably really regretting taking the phone call but i guess nothing's happened so far but I'm yeah be a little nervous 
Yeah, well, and at this point, too, as far as my understanding, I don't think Thomas had told him what had happened yet. But no, he's like, pick me up in front of my house. But BT dubs, not going to tell you there's a bunch of murder people inside. Yeah, well, and so Thomas supposedly told Robert that he wanted to go see Dr. Wong. Okay, so Thomas, I think, eventually told him or hinted that something was going on. But essentially, he wanted Robert to take him to go see Dr. Wong. Whereas Robert supposedly debated on taking him to the hospital or to police, but agreed to Thomas's wishes. He's like, okay, I'll take you to go see Dr. Wong. No big deal. Even though it's a very big deal and you should have taken him to the police. But I mean, hey, whatever. It is what it is. Can't change the past now, can we? Choices were made. Again, poor choices. Exactly. So Robert proceeded to bring Thomas to Dr. Wong's office at approximately 7 a.m., in which Thomas allegedly disclosed the horrifying events that previously took place at the family home. The police were called at around 7.45 a.m., in which they arrived shortly after to the Cosberg home. And I'm going to reference the province article from 1965 regarding the scene of the crime. So, quote, The door to the Cosberg house had been broken into by police. Superintendent James Mundell said the scene that greeted him was the worst he had seen in 20 years on the force. A double-bedded axe was found within the home, end quote. According to reports, police found the bodies of 39-year-old Osborne, 40-year-old Dorothy, 15-year-old Barry, 13-year-old Marianne, 11-year-old Gail, and 2-year-old Vincent. They were all found deceased in their bedrooms. I always like tugs at my heart with the little ones, like little bubbas. I know. It gets worse. Don't you worry, friend. Uh, Marianne, who reportedly was found in the same room as her sister Gail, was actually alive, but with severe head injuries. Unfortunately, she would eventually pass away on December 19th after being unable to regain consciousness. Osborne Jr., who was only six months old at the time, was found unharmed in his crib and reportedly taken to live with a grandparent after being found. Oh, so we kill the two-year-old, but we leave the six-month-old. Yeah, I don't really know what happened there, and I, we'll never really know. No, we'll never understand his mental state or what was going on, but no, I can only imagine what that horrific scene would look like when the cops walked in. No yeah, exactly. And I will mention that according to the amok.fandom.com website, it has been speculated that Thomas potentially had tried to smother Osborne Jr. However, that kind of more seems to be a speculation. And no surprise to anyone, Thomas would be arrested shortly after the horrifying discovery was made by police. Well, I would hope so. Yeah. So according to the province article from December 11th, 1965, there was a quoted unnamed 17-year-old youth, which we now know to be Thomas, that had been charged and attended juvenile court. At this point in time, Thomas had been charged with a total of five counts of delinquency in connection with capital murder. The article went on to report it was the Cosberg family who had perished. However, at the time, I'm assuming they did not include Thomas's name due to the fact that he fell under the Youth Criminal Code. For those unaware of the Canadian Youth Criminal Code, one of the stipulations is that the youth is not to have their name released to the public, hence why some of the 1965 articles do not list Thomas's name. However, they go on to list the Cosbergs, you know, all the victims that died, which is kind of odd. It's not odd, but it made interesting because it's like you say with a whole family except the one yeah. kid and they're like well that's the age of the kid that they didn't name so exactly it's the person that murdered them all but you didn't say the name but you just gave it away exactly yeah i know yeah anyways i'm not here to argue against the youth criminal code because that is way beyond my pay grade and way out of my jurisdiction of things to argue about on this fine day on this fine podcast 
or waste my breath about. Fine. We'll talk about things. Yes. So in terms of the trial and what I was able to find, it appears as though the legal process seemed to take approximately two-ish years from when the murders took place, as I assume there probably had to be numerous tests and assessments to be done. When trying to find information kind of during 1966 regarding the case, it seemed as though there wasn't much published in newspapers at this time. I don't know why. I don't know if it was maybe just me not being able to find anything in particular, but I had a really hard time. However, it's seemed as though the next kind of reporting time frame took place in 1967. But before I kind of go further with, you know, 1967 and the trial and what have you, I do want to kind of take a step back and discuss the milkshakes. Because I did stumble on some information that essentially said that Police did find the empty pill bottle in the home. However, there were no traces of bromide, barbiturates, or alcohol found in any of the victims' bodies. So any of the co- none of the Cosbergs had any of these found in the autopsies, I'm assuming, or the toxicology reports. Even though there was an empty sleeping pill bottle found in the home, this kind of goes against this report and kind of the notion in general that he had drugged his family members before murdering them. For those wondering, this was also mentioned in a Vancouver Sun article titled Five Axe Victims Weren't Drugged. This article, in direct reference to the original writings, noted that, quote, Coroner Glenn McDonald ruled that all the deaths were unnatural and were caused by many severe axe wounds to the head of each victim. I'm not sure as why then kind of the whole milkshake story ever kind of came into play. I want to say that was maybe Thomas's rendition or his additive to the whole situation. Yeah, it's kind of weird. You get like the stories change over time and facts get made up and all the extras. But so let me get this straight. The bodies proved that there was nothing in them. Yes. Like medication wise. Yes. Was there an article based or an article saying that there was nothing also in the milkshakes that were tested? Or is there any excess milkshake tested? Not that I ever saw, no. Mm, okay. According to so the autopsy, we're just going that that's not the real story. Yes, basically. Okay. And I don't even know, there was nothing that said like, oh, we tested these milkshakes or police took samples of these milkshakes. I mean, it was the 60s. Yeah, like they wouldn't go, if it wasn't the autopsy, yeah. they're like, well, they clearly didn't happen. So that means that they were killed alive somehow. Yeah. That's kind of what I was hinting to beforehand when you asked about, you know, were they asleep? Were they this? Because to be honest, I don't really, I don't really know. It's hard to say. And I think the story, what Thomas had said about him drugging his family, it's not that I don't doubt it. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe the autopsy or toxicology report is wrong. This case is kind of weird because later on Florence would go and testify and say like, oh yeah, like I fell asleep. I was really tired. He kept saying I should stay. That aspect of the case seems still prominent and goes like along with the story that he drugged people. But does it? It could also mean that maybe she was just tired and maybe Florence and, you know, Dorothy were drinking or maybe they weren't. Maybe she was just fucking tired. I mean, I fall asleep at people's houses all the time and I'm not taking sleeping pills or anything. It's not a clear cut story. That's or, what I'm trying to or say. Or humor me right. in this day and age and all the things that come out that... Maybe it wasn't the sleeping pills, even though the bottle was there, supposedly, but that they were drugged somehow. But it's the kind of drug that like leaves your body really fast and then you just never know. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't be in the eye of the autopsy. Maybe. 
I feel like if they're all killed alive, especially the dad, there'd be some kind of struggle. Yeah. You would think if they weren't knocked out by a sleeping pill, they were there would have been more of a struggle, right? Like if they weren't completely out of it. But in the same sense, I mean, I don't know. This it's it's confusing. It's weird. It doesn't add up. And for some reason I got really held up on the whole milkshake side of it. Because it's not that that even matters. I mean, people died. People died horrifically. And obviously, Mm. Thomas was struggling, and we'll get to that. But it's just a really random thing that just kind of came out of all of this. And to hear, well, nothing was really found in their system, this, that, and the other. It's okay. So what was the point? Was Thomas trying to say that he had given the sleeping pills to his family as a way to kind of make it seem as if he was trying to not hurt them? but then ended up killing them. Do you know what I mean? Almost as if he was trying to... Some kind of like mercy thing. Yeah, or, you know, giving them the peace of going to sleep before then murdering them. I I don't know. What what are you thinking? I would like to stick with a story that that they weren't with it because... Even to me, that it still doesn't make sense that, that there wasn't a struggle. And the fact that you could only beat one person's head in or potentially start going on at one person without another person not like jumping in, especially like a two-year-old exactly. or something. I feel like something did happen, whether or not it was sleeping pills. I don't know. But I feel like they were all kind of under the influence of something. There has to have been something because that was my thought was, okay, so if they weren't all under the influence of sleeping medication of sort, you're telling me that he was able to murder each family member one by one without someone waking up? Like That doesn't add up to me. Nope. So that's that's just a little milkshake tidbit that I, I'd wanted to talk about before diving in more about the, the trial itself because I kind of got hung up on it. My brain was going back and forth saying, okay, does it matter? Does it not matter? But I think it's good we talk about it because discrepancies or, you know, mismatched information, we have to discuss them when it comes to true crime, just as if we have to discuss it when it comes to the paranormal or conspiracy theories or what have you. Because at the end of the day, I think as humans, we just want to know the truth of these situations and we want to make them less difficult to wrap our heads around. We want to make them less weird sounding, if that makes sense. Yes, I understand where you're coming from. Thank you. Appreciate it. Anyways, back to 1967. A glorious year, if you will. In a February 14th, 1967 Vancouver Sun article, then 18-year-old Thomas had appeared in court. At that point, he was charged with six counts of murder. As you may recall from briefly before, he was charged with five counts of murder. However, another charge was probably added for the murder of his sister, Marianne, who had died due to the complications caused by her attack as mentioned. In the February 14th, 1967 Vancouver Sun article again, it appeared as though there was no plea from Thomas at that point and he would remain in custody until a further hearing. However, in a province news article on February 17th, 1967, in which I'm going to reference this kind of in depth and using a direct quote, because I want to make sure that the information I'm about to explain or that we're going to talk about makes sense so what better way than to do a direct quote and i know sometimes people don't necessarily like when podcasts use such long quotes or don't like that podcasts use direct quotes all the time but honestly we're just storytelling and to tell a story sometimes you have to reference other work and sometimes you have to actually use direct wording so that it makes sense sometimes you just gotta spit facts and they like it or not here it is exactly so to quote the february 17th 1967 province article quote an assize court jury has acquitted Thomas Cosberg, 18, of six counts of capital murder in the December 10th, 1965, 
axling of his family. The 12-man jury found him not guilty by reason of insanity. Mr. Justice Rattan ordered Cosberg returned to Riverview Mental Hospital where he will remain in strict custody unless released by cabinet order. End quote. And, Christy, before you say anything, because I know I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, I know you want to say something, but I have another quote from the province article. Quote, Cosberg, represented by C.J. Woodliffe, pleaded not guilty when the charges were read to him in court previously, which kind of goes against what I had said because it goes against what I read. So my bad. But anyways, but in a statement of fact to which he consented being read in court, he made the attacks in which the jury earlier found him fit to stand trial. The trial jury was told by two psychiatrists that Cosberg was definitely suffering from a mental illness at the time of the killings. One of them, Dr. Joseph Thomas, described the youth as a, quote, automatic person capable of carrying out a complex and deliberate plan, but whose brain was not capable of discerning whether what he was doing was right or wrong. End quote. So essentially, at one point, they thought he was fit to stand trial. And then that obviously did not pan out well because it was later determined he was not fit to stand trial. And he had said that he was not guilty. But then in front of the jury, he essentially explained what happened, which then kind of, you know, made him sound a lot less not guilty. And I don't know if that's playing into his whole insanity outing of it or what, that he was like, fine, that he wasn't fine. Um, I'm confuzzled a little bit. What's your confuzzlement? Just that. They said he was fine, and then he wasn't, and then he's like, I'm not guilty, and then he just flips around. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes to show that he wasn't well. Yeah. In terms of a diagnosis of sorts, according to the province article, a doctor by the name of Edmund Miller from Riverview Hospital had reportedly stated that Thomas potentially was suffering from schizophrenia at the time of the murders. Dr. Wong was also interviewed for the case in which he supposedly stated that he felt Thomas was suffering from, once again, an emotional disturbance. <laughs> I don't like that. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm going to just skew a little bit for my notes. An emotional disturbance. I hate that phrase because it's not a tan... Like, what does it mean? It's something that obviously we don't use in, I mean, in my line of work anymore in the mental health field in Canada, but give it a firm diagnosis or don't say anything at all. That's that's my mentality around it because an emotional disturbance could mean a multitude of different things and people, I think, use it so widely that it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's very vague. And it doesn't sound like a like true tangible diagnosis for somebody. Like, it's just like, oh, they have this. And you're like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's very vague. Thank you. That's what I was trying to say. It's just, it's very vague. And it doesn't necessarily say anything in my mind. But then again, that's just me. Anyways, back to what I wrote down. So an emotional disturbance so severe that he did not understand what was right from wrong as previously stated in the direct quote. As briefly mentioned, it was deemed that Thomas would remain at Riverview Hospital until his complete or partial recovery was confirmed. So there wasn't a specific time frame put into place mainly because it depends on the recovery process. And as we, well, as I know from working in mental health, recovery isn't linear. It's not, okay, we're going to start here and then end here and everything is going to be honky-dory in the middle. It takes time. For a lot of people, and sometimes it's not so long, sometimes very long, sometimes it's someone's whole life. But... Because there is no specific timeline in place in terms of Thomas' sentence to Riverview Mental Hospital, it may or may not come to listeners and Christie's surprised to hear that he would be released only 10 years later. I'm sorry, what? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. Let's let's talk about the release. So I'm going to quote a September 16th, 1977 Vancouver Sun article I found to explain the potential plot twist that I kind of just, you know, threw in everybody's face. So quote, the provincial cabinet has ordered the discharge from Riverview Hospital of a Vancouver man who killed his parents, two brothers and two sisters with an axe in 1965, which also pause the number of victims depending on which article seems to change. So this is another discrepancy. I I, kind of got hung up earlier because in my notes I've written something and then even in some of the quotes the the number changes. I don't know why. Canadian documentation is not great. Let's just put that out there, especially from the 1960s and 70s. I don't know what was going on in Canada then other than probably... Oh, well, actually, I have an idea of a couple things going on in Canada that, that back then that weren't so great. But anyways, the documentation's weird and spotty, and it's I'm the also... the internet. It's very classic that way. Well, I mean, I'm referencing old newspapers, so it was pre-internet. Okay, it's just people being shitty reporters. Anyways, so... Mm-hmm. As I was saying, while the cabinet order officially discharging him was signed Thursday, the the Vancouver Sun has learned that he has obtained daily releases for some time to pursue educational courses, returning to the hospital each night. Thomas Gordon Cosberg was found not guilty of the multiple slayings by reason of insanity in court proceedings that ended in February of 1967. Now, people listening, including Chrissy, are probably wondering how he got released so soon. In which, please don't come for me, but I'm going to reference the Vancouver Sun article again directly because it explains it a lot better. So, quote, the provincial order in council released today said there is satisfactory evidence that Cosberg has recovered from his mental illness and noted that a conditional discharge was recommended by the government's order in council patient review board. The board found that Cosberg's discharge would be not contrary to the interests of the public with a view to including him back into the community end quote so i know people have their opinions when it comes to those who have been convicted being re-released into society especially those who have committed very heinous and horrendous crimes such as murder i for one don't think we need to get into this you know whole consensus or find a common ground right during this episode. Um, However, I do think it's something that people should take into consideration and maybe use this case as a reference point. But I do want to hear your thoughts, Christy, because I know last month when we covered Jurgen Barch, we had, this was actually a very similar case to Jurgen Barch in the same sense where Jurgen, I don't want to spoil it because it's on Patreon and I don't know if we'll ever release it to our main feed. So anyways, Jurgen was also someone who was very unwell. Uh, mentally and who because of that notion he wasn't i he was found guilty but sentenced to spend his time in a mental health facility he was offered kind of a deal where he could be released earlier due to treatment and i know during that episode we had discussions around that in terms of does that make it right does it make it wrong so what are your thoughts on this case and what are your thoughts on thomas being released after 10 years i don't know i remember the whole Jurgen thing that we were flip-flopping it wasn't sure is it because of his how he was brought up and the fact that it was like okay okay, maybe not his fault in a way of like starting to feel that way, but then he did the actions and that was his fault. Yeah. Nature versus nurture. That was a really big discussion we had. Yeah. Here, it's not so much a thing. I don't think because 
Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I was very torn because a guy truly can't understand that aspect of the mental health and what was going on with him potentially to know, okay, yes, he was unstable for this reason. Why he went to the Institute, okay. Was 10 years okay? I don't know. I feel like personally it wasn't enough, but then I can't judge that as a specialist and whatnot. I'm, I'm just torn between both. Yeah, I... I'm in the same boat. I mean, I work in mental health, so I can understand to a degree how long the recovery process is for some people, right? In the sense of feeling at least stable enough to be on your own in society without any supports maybe in place or feel as though you don't need supports because of previous coping skills or strategies or what have you. When it comes to Thomas, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit taken aback. I I don't know why 10 years when it comes to certain things sounds like a long time like when you say oh I've been with somebody for 10 years I've been in a romantic relationship for 10 years or it's been 10 years since I've seen this person or I've been working in this field for 10 years that sounds like a long period of time so I don't know why there's this weird hang up on oh this person only served 10 years and I don't know if that's because of the fact that this was a really gruesome case I mean obviously I didn't get in to heavy duty details because I didn't want to and I didn't think it was detrimental to telling the story about the case. But at the end of the day, I wonder if there is just this weird mentality around time, right? Because for certain positive things, 10 years can be a very long time. Whereas when it comes to negative, it's, oh my gosh, only 10 years. You know, it's it almost seems too short when in reality, if it was a different situation, would we be having the same discussion? right? Do, do you get what I mean? Yeah, I feel like yours is, it's very much like double standard. It's like if it's a negative thing, it's not enough time served or not enough time. And then if it's something positive, you're like, oh, that's like great. It's been so long. Yeah, like it's, ex- there's no winning. Yeah, it's almost as if it's something positive. Doing something for 10 years is almost like a good foundation. Whereas in this situation, Thomas only serving 10 years, it, it's I don't know, there's, and I don't know if maybe you and I are just the only ones maybe feeling this way. I don't know if listeners feel a certain type of way about this or what have you, but it just seems as though because it is hand in hand with such a gruesome and horrendous crime or situation that... 10 years doesn't seem fair enough because and I guess it boils down to how how long do you measure someone's life for right like how what is the value of a life especially when it comes to crimes like this and that's not something we obviously have to come to an answer to today but it's just an interesting discussion and one that I mean I would recommend folks to kind of have internally especially when it comes to I don't know election time and you know teaching people about cases like this because it's good to know where your morals land no and I get that you said there's no no way of knowing is that enough time or what someone's life is worth. In terms of legal jargon, I think what we're stuck on is the fact that someone's life is worth potentially 25 years. Like, yeah, 25 years of life. Yeah. And if you were to five people, times five type thing. Yeah. Like, I think it's what people get stuck on. They're like, that's where they say, oh, 10 years was not near enough. If we're going to say that 25 to life is for yeah. one life or something like that. That's where I think when people might get stuck. Exactly. Yeah. And that's... That's a thousand percent fair. A thousand percent. And I think it's fair to say that Thomas was clearly struggling with his mental health prior to the incident. And clearly he made quite a bit of progress to be able to be reconsidered, to be released. I mean, he had to go through, I kind of mentioned in one of the quotes that he had to go in front of the board of review, which essentially is a board of people, specialists, who essentially determine based on your reports and your documentation whether or not you're fit 
to go back into society, right? So obviously there was a lot going on at Riverview that proved that, yeah, he can go out and he we don't have any concerns about him, this, that, and the other. He can, he can rejoin society. But I wonder if people at the time and maybe even now listening have a hard time kind of swallowing that information i don't know it's confu- it's just very i don't want to say it's confusing but it's just it's interesting how as a society we all have different opinions about what happens to people who aren't well and who commit very you know tragic crimes when they aren't well and how different societies in different places across the world deal with those situations Mm-hmm. Like I said, we probably each have our own opinion, and I'm not going to dive into it right now, but it is what it is. Everyone has their own views. Exactly. So for those wondering and further referencing the Vancouver Sun article from September 16th, 1977, Thomas was set to be released under the notion that he would have to be supervised by the executive director of the Forensic Psychiatric Services once a week to make sure that the plan for his discharge was being monitored going forward. There were also additional criteria to his release, such as the fact that he would have to remain in British Columbia in a pre-approved home, complete weekly check-ins as mentioned, and maintain good behavior in the community as well as never possessing or owning a firearm. A further interesting criteria was that he was expected to attend any mandatory review board hearings, where I'm assuming they would call on him to review his release plan and make sure he is doing everything he's supposed to be doing. I'm also under the impression that if the review board had wanted him to do another psychiatric assessment at Riverview Hospital, for example, he would have to do it based on their request. I can't say exactly for sure what would happen if he went against any of these orders. However, in my understanding of, you know, basic discharges from the criminal justice system, usually what would happen would be that if someone was to, let's say, not follow through on something or what have you, they would be apprehended for a breach of sorts, kind of similar to what people know as a probation order or what could be a probation order. Does that make sense? Yeah, if you breached in some way, it's like breaching your probation, like you go back. Based on what I read on the amoc.fandom.com website, Thomas ended up getting married and worked at the Vancouver Children's Hospital for over 30 years. I'm not sure exactly what he did at the hospital. Regardless, it appears as though there was no further criminal involvement by Thomas after the gruesome 1965 occurrence with his family. Everything just kind of seemed to go quiet and probably very normal for him. Based off an obituary that I read from the Springfield Funeral Home website, Thomas passed away on January 1st, 2016 at the age of 67. Further, I was able to find out that his wife had died two years previous to him in 2014. I have had a lot of questions regarding this case and doing my research, one of them being why. From what I gather, the Cosbergs reportedly got along fairly well on the outside looking in. However, in my mind, that doesn't necessarily, I guess, take away the notion that things maybe weren't as rainbows and sunshine kisses behind closed doors. I don't know if perhaps Thomas was triggered by his family in some way, shape, or form. Maybe that's what led to him attacking them, as it's not outwardly stated in anything I could find regarding a specific motive as to why he picked his family and why he did what he did. With that being said, some 
Sometimes the motive of an action doesn't necessarily have to make sense for something to happen. It's clear that Thomas was not well when he committed the murders, but that he was able to receive the treatment he needed to get to a point of recovery in the previous schizophrenia diagnosis to be able to essentially get a second try at life outside of a hospital setting. There is a part of me that wonders if he ever did come to the realization of what he did, and I picture this realization in my head as if similar to waking up from a nightmare. However, in reality, if Thomas ever did come to this realization, I can imagine that the rest of his life then a continuation of that nightmare of what happened back on December 9th and 10th of 1965. I'm also unsure if he ever did end up connecting with his youngest brother, Osborne Jr., as it is not hourly documented that the two ever reconnected after the gruesome murder of the family. I totally forgot that the baby survived yeah. at this point. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Had to loop that back around because, yeah, it's... Imagine, like, that being your sibling, and then all this happened, and then moved on with life. Well, yeah, and that's what I mean. At the end of the day, yes, Thomas received treatment. Yes, he was given a second try at life. Yes, you know, he was able to work and have a wife and this, that, and the other, but... I guess where my mind goes is he has to live with that notion that he did what he did for the rest of his life and know that there is somebody out there who is directly affected because Osborne Jr. wasn't able to be raised by his parents. He was only six months old when this happened, Mm -hmm. right? So His whole life was just taken away from him. mm -hmm. Which, yeah, I mean, I can't... There's a lot of different ways my mind is going, but I think the directions my mind or my mind is going doesn't have to necessarily be discussed on here further. But yeah, just very unfortunate, and I don't think they ever reconnected. I wasn't able to find anything that said they did, so my mind's my money's banking on the fact they didn't. But yeah, I don't I don't think I would. No. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems as though we might not ever have all of the answers to this case, which is kind of similar to the Janie Lou Gibbs episode. I'd like to extend restful wishes to the Cosberg family. Honestly, this case, when I started reading into it, I wasn't sure if I wanted to cover it or not, but I felt, you know what, it's something that I know I haven't really heard of in terms of other true crime podcasts covering it. So I thought, okay, well, why not talk about it, right? Um... You know, it's just one of those cases that kind of sticks out to you. I'd also like to encourage listeners to do their own research into the case if they feel they would like to, and maybe just take some time in educating yourselves around mental illness and resources that are available in your area if you'd like to do so. And speaking of resources, if you want to check out some of the resources I use for today's episode, here's my big old shout out uh, of the following resources I did use. So big old thanks to the YouTube video, Family Annihilators Who Predate Chris Watts, Volume 25. Also, Chris Watts is a piece of shit. That's just my personal opinion. Putting that out into the universe, that's not part of the title. But anyways, that YouTube... Yeah, trash. This uh, YouTube video was uploaded by user Elizabeth Chronicles on August 21st, 2021. The FutureScopeAstrology.com website, the Redfin website, the Amok.Fandom.com website, the Central City Foundation website, which you can check out at www.CentralCityFoundation.ca. The province newspaper article, Youth of 17 Faces Court Monday Over Five Axe Slayings. December 11th, 1965, the Vancouver Sun article, Six Slang Charges, No Author Listed, February 14th, 1967, the Springfield Funeral Home website, the Times Colonist 
article, Youth to Stay in Institution, No Author Listed, March 2nd, 1967. The Vancouver Sun article, Axe Killer of Six to be Released, No Author Listed, Friday, September 16th, 1977. Order by the Lieutenant Governor in Council, which was posted or which was written on December 14th, 1967. The Vancouver Sun article, Five Axe Victims Weren't Drugged. No author listed, December 16th, 1965. And just want to shout out the Brew Crimes coverage on the case in their 68th episode, which we're going to play their promo at the end of our episode today. And we would highly recommend you go check out that podcast. And before I let you, Christy, tell your little spiel, I will say... I might have got my dish like my numbers wrong in terms of victim numbers because it seems as though it kind of changes and I also can't do math. So if you're trying to count the victims and what have you, just know that I may have messed up my wording and my sincerest apologies. It is it's been a long week already. So I my my bad and I hope I got this information as clear and concise as possible because once again, this is one of those cases that also kind of stuck with me a little bit since doing the research. A lot of our case like a lot of our true crime cases stick to me after doing the research this is one of them so hope i did it justice i think you did so kudos well thank you and hey if people want to continue listening to weird distractions podcast could you tell these fine listeners where they can support the show for free and just all the information that you seem to hold and provide to our lovely lovely listeners yes let me just open up my treasure chest of goodies of where to find us our show is available on many platforms that you can find us on for a podcast just a few to name apple spotify google if you go to apple Great way to help out shows for free. Always going on, giving a review, giving a rating. It really helps out podcasts, so I highly recommend you go and do that. Next, you're going to jump on some social media because Alex is the best at her Insta and her TikToks and whatever else she does because I don't have time for that shit. Um, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Weird Distractions Podcast, or Twitter is Weird Distract I1. If you're looking to support the show with a little bit more, a little monetization, we again consider you joining one of our Patreons. We have two tiers. You get monthly bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes footage, some stickers, some stories that you guys won't have access to on here as we're talking about um, on here's this current episode and other little goodies that you just want to hear about will be on there. Shout out to our current patrons. We got Tom, Bailey, and Angela. We are always loving your support, as always. So we want to thank you guys so much. And as always, let me... What pop star icon am I going to try to sing? Um, I'm going to I'm gonna see okay. if you can guess it, okay? Can you guess it? We love you. Who do you think I was? Pop star icon. I have no idea. If you're listening and you guessed Cher, you'd be right. Cher. Yes, sure. You know. No, that that was terrible. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it it is what it's it is. It's more. It's like it's like a little deeper. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna continue. <laughs> you probably should. We we just lost like 10 percent of our listeners at this point. And you know what? I have no regrets. Mm, okay. Well, if we do, then you regret it all. But other than our Patreon, other ways to monetize, help out the show a little bit. We got some one-time pledges or multiple pledges, whatever you fancy to buy me a coffee, give a little tidbit, help us out here and there. You can also go on to Redbubble. You can pretty much find our logo on, on anything you want to make. Mugs, sweaters, shirts, clogs, whatever you fancy. You'll find it on there. Lastly, we are always on the hunt for some more stories for our listener distractions. We are trying to get some more episodes out. So we just need some more stories. I know you want to share with somebody. So why not share with us so we can share with the world. 
So please send us your stories to Podcast at Outlook.com. Yes. And don't forget, this is the spookiest season of them all. So if you have a ghost story or two that you've been dying to tell somebody who also loves to talk and hear ghost stories, tell it to us, your weird friends, your weird fam jam, you know, might as well. And as always, if you need a distraction, we got you. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Brew Crime, a true crime and beer podcast. This is a podcast where we pick a theme, cover a few cases, and pair them with craft beer. Join me, Mike. And me, JT. As we explore the world of crime, conspiracies, or whatever catches our attention. You can find us on social media at Brew Crime or our website, brewcrime.com. And you can find us on any podcast app at Brew Crime Podcast. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and maybe, eh, probably, not definitely tip a bottle or two back as you do it. Drink with us the second and last Tuesday of every month.